Good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> Thank you for being here. We're excited to have you worshiping with us and to uh, simply praise our Savior, to celebrate the day of his birth. Can you guys believe that there is one week left in 2023? I know everybody and every pastor says this every year on the last Sunday of the year, but it really does feel like this year flew past us, right? We should have at least a couple more months before we hit 2024, but here we are. We are at the end of the year, and as we reflect back on the year, there was a lot of bad news throughout the year. Every day, you could open up your phone, scroll through social media, and there is some kind of bad news to be found. In 2023, the United States experienced more billion-dollar weather disasters than any previous year. In February, there was an earthquake that hit Turkey, and 60,000 people died in that earthquake. In October, Hamas attacked civilians at a concert to kick off a pretty serious conflict that has dominated the headlines since. There's been wildfires throughout the year causing damage to homes and, and all kinds of stuff. There's division, there's violence. Inflation is through the roof right now. There's no shortage of bad news. You could scroll every single day and find some kind of bad news to bring you to tears. And this brief list doesn't even include the bad news that you received personally, the tragedies that you had to experience this year. But today, we don't want to dwell on this bad news. We've done enough, enough of that the rest of the year. Today, we have some good news for you. We have the greatest news that one could ever hear, the news that is the hope of all people, the hope of a sin-cursed world. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, how he humbled himself to the form of a small child, to the form of a baby, so he could bring salvation and forgiveness for our sins. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> Before we get reading, though, I'd like to say, here at, at Redemption, Redemption Bible Church, we work very hard to make sure that the message of this pulpit is the message of God's word. There's nobody sitting in this room that needs Pastor Garrett's hot takes on current events. What you guys need is the truth of God's word. And that is what we strive to do here. I hope that you'll see that today. So today we're gonna study this passage. I'm gonna share three principles that we can draw from this passage. And then we'll close with a final application. So let's read our passage today. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Matthew, the author of the gospel, Matthew, he gives us the story of Jesus, but he gives it to us from the perspective of Joseph. And Joseph was a man, he was betrothed to a young woman named Mary. Now betrothal for first century Jews was a really big deal. It's similar to when a couple today gets engaged, but it's quite a bit more involved than that. It's a lot more serious than an engagement today. It's not uncommon today to see a young couple get engaged and then only a few months later break off that engagement. They call the wedding off just a few months before or at some point before the wedding. You ever see this on social media? You know, you see people, they make their big engagement announcement and then you see them maybe a little bit, several months, a couple years later and you're like, oh, whatever happened? I didn't see any wedding pictures and you click on their profile and what do you know? They never actually got married. They had called it off before the wedding day came. Today, somebody can simply get cold feet and call the wedding off. They can decide, you know, I don't truly love this person like I thought I did. Or maybe they fear they aren't quite as compatible as they once were. But either party can call that wedding off at any point, really, and there's no repercussions for that. But a betrothal in Joseph's day was legally binding. And that's why Joseph and Mary are referred to as husband and wife in this passage. They hadn't been officially married yet, But once you hit betrothal, you were considered in the eyes of the law, husband and wife. And in order to end a betrothal like this, you'd have to present the betrothed with a writ of divorce. So generally speaking, this writ of divorce, this was intended only to be done in the case of adultery. And even though they weren't married, any kind of infidelity during this betrothal period, that was considered adultery. So I want you to consider how things must have looked from Joseph's perspective. We we know that this child in Mary's womb was was not the result of infidelity, right? We, We know this was the result of the Holy Spirit intervening supernaturally, causing this pregnancy to come about. But Joseph, he didn't know this. He just found out that his his wife, his betrothed, was pregnant. When my son was born, Ezra, He's, he's out here somewhere. He might be out in the lobby. When I first saw him, my first thought was, that kid looks nothing like me. <laughs> nothing like me. When we had my daughter, she looked exactly like me. She was my twin from the womb. But Ezra looked nothing like me. And I joked with my wife and I said, hey, we're going to need a DNA test here because I'm not sure that's mine. Now, I was joking, obviously. But you have to imagine... Joseph's got some related concerns going on here. He's got to be a little bit confused here because he sees Mary and he says, I have not been with Mary intimately or physically and she's pregnant. Something is not adding up here. And maybe she tried to explain this to Joseph that she hadn't truly been unfaithful, that this pregnancy was a result of the work of God. But again, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Sounds a little far-fetched, doesn't it? It would seem more likely to him that Mary had indeed been unfaithful. But Joseph is not a vindictive man. He's not an angry man. On the contrary, we're told that Joseph was a just, a righteous man. And the laws and the traditions of that day essentially would require a man to divorce 
if his spouse or his betrothed had been uh, unfaithful, if they had committed adultery. To not do so would be uh, considered a, a participation or an, or an endorsement of that sin of adultery. But as well as being a righteous man, a man who loved and abided by the law of his day, he was a compassionate man as well. Joseph, I believe, loved Mary. He did not want her to be shamed and ostracized. Because Joseph knew that if the law were taken to the fullest extent, Mary could be stoned for this. Best case scenario, the divorce process goes through. Mary's labeled as an adulterer. She carries unspeakable shame. And she's left alone to raise her child without help or support. A task that would be almost impossible for a woman in that time period. So Joseph, not wanting to throw this shame upon Mary, decides that the best course of action is for him to divorce her quietly. To do it privately, not in the public eye. To do it outside of the general legal proceedings in order to spare her some of that shame. And given the information that was available to Joseph, this is about as level-headed, I think, as we can expect from somebody in his shoes. But as he considered all of this, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. And he tells Joseph, Joseph, Mary has not been unfaithful. The child she carries is, in fact, a work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Joseph, you should not fear to take Mary as your wife. Do not have any concerns about raising this child as your own. And we know from what we read already, verses 24, 25, that Joseph eventually does exactly that. He takes Mary as his wife and he takes this son as his own. Many of us are probably a little bit more familiar with uh, Luke's uh, treatment of the Christmas story. That's generally the one that people turn to. And in Luke chapter 1 and 2, we get to see a lot of Mary. We see how she handles the news that she's going to carry the Son of God in her womb for nine months, that she will give birth to him, that she will raise him. And it's a pretty remarkable story because Mary was a young teenage girl at the time. And she knew that when she became pregnant, even though she had done nothing wrong, people would assume the worst of her. But her response to the angel who told her this news was this. She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. It's a pretty amazing response. It demonstrates the depth of her faith. But I think that Joseph's faith is equally impressive because there's, a, there, there's much at stake for Joseph here as well if he remains in this relationship with Mary. God has asked something very difficult of Joseph. But when God speaks, he expects faithful obedience from his people. That's the first principle. I told you there would be three principles. The first one is when God speaks, faithful obedience is the appropriate response. Now, if I were you, I wouldn't count on an angelic visitation in a dream. Uh, could happen. Probably won't happen, though. God speaks to us today primarily through his word. This is his main vehicle of speaking to his people. And when he speaks to us in his word, he expects us to obey. And this applies to the parts that we like, the parts that we dislike, the parts that are easier to swallow, and the parts that might make us a little less popular with those around us. And so I ask all of you, is there an area of your life, a habit, 
a practice, something in your life that is inconsistent with the word of God. If that is the case, I encourage you to repent of that sin. Turn from your disobedience and instead submit to God's word with humble obedience. Over the coming year, the Lord may ask you to do something uncomfortable. He may lead you into uh, full-time ministry or to being a missionary. He may simply lead you to be more intentional in the way that you disciple your children. He may be leading you to make some changes in your marriage and your relationship with your spouse. Or maybe there's just somebody the Lord has been putting on your heart to share the good news of the gospel with. When the Lord asks you to do something uncomfortable, will you be faithful and obedient? That's what Joseph did. He received a difficult task, an uncomfortable task, but he was obedient nonetheless. He didn't shy away. He was faithful despite so many reasons not to be. Joseph would take Mary as his wife and take this child as his own. But this is not just a child. There's more going on here. When the angel appears to Joseph, the angel calls him a son of David. And that description is very important. See, one of Matthew's uh, primary focuses in his gospel is to show that Jesus descended from the line of King David. If you look at Luke's gospel, he has a, a genealogy of Jesus, and he tracks it all the way back to Adam. And what Luke is trying to show is that, look, Jesus goes all the way back to Adam, who is the father of all mankind, because Jesus is the savior of all people. And that's true. But Matthew has a little bit of a different focus. If you read the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, it's a genealogy. But he only takes it back to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And that's because for Matthew, he's trying to show his Jewish audience that Jesus came from the line of David. And why is that important? Why does it matter if Jesus descended from David? Well, the Old Testament teaches us that it was from the line of King David that the Messiah would come. God had promised that one day a king from the line of David would return. He would reestablish the Davidic throne and he would reign with perfect peace and righteousness and justice for all of eternity. And God initially makes that promise to David and then through his prophets, he reiterates that promise to us. Many, many times that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So when the angel tells Joseph or calls him a son of David, Matthew's giving us a vital piece of information here. Because if this child that Mary carries is not from the line of David, he cannot be the Messiah. He, cannot, he simply cannot be the savior of the world. And when Joseph accepts this child as his own, because Joseph is from the line of David, then from a legal standpoint, this child is from the line of David. In verse 21, the angel tells Joseph that he is to call this child Jesus. Hopefully that's not a surprise to any of you since you are here today. Jesus is the reason we gathered here in the first place. And Jesus came to save the world from sin. But this posed a problem for many of the Jewish people in Jesus' day. Because Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. When the Jewish people thought of their Messiah, they thought of a military leader a political mastermind. They wanted a warrior king. They wanted somebody that could come in and put down Roman tyranny, 
who could destroy the foreign kings that they were living underneath. The Jewish people didn't expect such humble beginnings for their Messiah, that God himself would come and humble himself and be born and laid in a feeding trough for animals. They didn't expect that he would come as a baby. But Jesus' mission was not to overthrow the Roman Empire. His mission was to rescue us from the clutches of sin and death. And Jesus succeeded in that mission. He lived a perfectly sinless life, something no other person in all of history has been able to do. And because he was sinless, he could be an acceptable substitute when he went to the cross on our behalf. He took our sins on himself and paid that penalty that we deserved. And now everyone who puts their faith in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin. But so many choose to reject that salvation. They reject Jesus because he's not quite what they expect or quite what they want. If you read through the Gospels, it is tragic how many people came and saw Jesus, who spoke to him, who saw him perform miracles, but at the end of the day, they said, yeah, you're not for me. I don't want what you're offering, Jesus. He proves himself over and over to be the Messiah, but people fail to accept it because he's not the Messiah they wanted. You see, they didn't want salvation from sin. They wanted salvation from Rome. They wanted their own kingdom to be established. A warrior king who would break their enemies. Jesus brought the salvation they needed, just not the one that they wanted. And the same problem remains true for us today. So many people reject Jesus because they realize he won't offer them all the things that they want. People want a Jesus who will give them material blessing. People want a Jesus that loves and never condemns sin. They want a Jesus who prevents all of their suffering and always makes them happy 100% of the time. And I don't know who you came here with today. I don't know why you came here today. Maybe your life is a mess right now and you came because you heard that Jesus will fix all of your problems. I can't promise you that Jesus will fix all of your problems. In fact, I'm pretty sure he won't make all those problems simply go away. But what Jesus does promise is freedom from sin. He promises forgiveness and true, satisfying, full, eternal life. Jesus promises not that we will escape all suffering in this life, but that our suffering is never wasted or in vain. That it's always being used for his glory and for our good. The Jesus of the Bible, the true Jesus, may not be exactly what you were expecting. But man, friend, I can promise you that he will always surpass those expectations. That's the second principle today. Jesus surpasses all expectations. He was not the Messiah people expected. He was a much, much greater Messiah than they expected. He may not be exactly who you thought. He may not give you all the things that you were hoping to gain from him. But he offers you the salvation you need. And there is no other name under heaven who will offer you that salvation. You may not like that Jesus calls us to repent and to give up certain behaviors to follow him, but friend, I promise whatever you give up to follow Jesus, man, it pales in comparison to what he offers in return. We have a sin problem. 
All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard, and we rest under the judgment of God. But Jesus dealt with that problem of sin so that you and I can repent, so that we can be restored to relationship with God, the relationship we were created for. You and I were created to know God and enjoy relationship with him forever. But because of our sin, we are separated from him. But Jesus came so we could be spared from the judgment and penalty that our sin racked up and that we could be restored to him so that we could instead enjoy the mercy and grace and goodness of God. You guys, you can search and search and search. You will not find true satisfaction in this life. And that sounds like a bold statement, but if you really consider it, you know it's true. The satisfaction you find in this life is fleeting. That's why we shell out $1,000 for the new iPhone every year. It was, the iPhone 14 was fantastic. Now it's a, a paperweight because the 15 came out. Right? You may have that, that person that you love deeply and dearly. You'll marry them, and after a couple of years, you realize they might still be great. You might still love them so much, but they are not ultimately going to satisfy you. Even the very best things in this life will not offer perfect satisfaction. But Jesus never leaves us wanting. The salvation that he offers, it provides satisfaction that will not fade or end. So Jesus may be different than what you expected or what you were hoping for, but he will surpass those hopes and expectations. I promise you that. Matthew isn't done yet, though. In verse 22, he tells us that all of this, Jesus coming to be born as a child, born as a baby, took place to fulfill what the prophet spoke. And in verse 23, he writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. These words were originally written by the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, he ministered and wrote the book of Isaiah, uh, 700-ish B.C. So he wrote these words 700 years before Jesus was born. And according to Matthew, these words were prophesying about the birth of Jesus, specifically the miraculous nature of his birth. Now this text, Matthew uh, 1, 18-25, this is one of the most contested and criticized in all of Matthew's gospel. Now, critics of the Bible argue that Isaiah's words here that he wrote 700 years before the birth of Jesus, had nothing to do with Jesus. They were about something taking place in his own lifetime. And so they say that Matthew is really playing fast and loose with the Old Testament here. He's taking Isaiah's words and he's cramming them into a Jesus-shaped box so that it sounds nice for his gospel. We don't have time this afternoon to dive entirely into the book of Isaiah, but I do think it's worthwhile for us to consider whether Matthew is right in applying these words to Jesus. Because it's very likely that at some point, if you haven't already, you're going to speak with somebody that raises some of these criticisms, somebody who's skeptical of this passage. So I do want to briefly look at Isaiah. You can turn with me or follow along on the screen to Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses uh, 10 through 17. So Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10. Again... The Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of, of Judah at this time, king of God's people. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. 
But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So critics of Matthew read this text that we just read from Isaiah and they say, see, Isaiah is not talking about Jesus. He's talking about Isaiah's day. Because in Isaiah 7, the king of Judah has two enemy kings, two enemy nations that are causing trouble. They're coming up against them. And God says through his prophet Isaiah, a child is going to be born and this child will be a sign to you. And he will be a sign that I'm going to protect you from these two enemy nations. And before this child is old, by the time this child's old enough to know what is right and wrong, well then, these two nations are going to be leveled and destroyed. And those two things did happen in Isaiah's lifetime. I do think that Isaiah was talking about a child that would be born in his own time and that, a child, that that child would be assigned to the king of his day. But I don't believe that's all Isaiah was prophesying about. Let's skip forward a couple chapters to Isaiah 9 where he speaks about this child once again. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah writing about this, this child again, but now we're seeing a, a bigger perspective, a bigger context here. Because it's clear from Isaiah 9, this child is not an ordinary child. I mean, look at the titles that are ascribed to him. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then Isaiah says that this child is going to rule, that he will reestablish this Davidic throne, the throne of King David, and he's going to reign in justice and righteousness and peace forever. And that throne will not end. It will not be overtaken by another enemy ever again. Now, from Isaiah's day forward, that did not happen. In fact, the people of God were exiled, and they've lived under many foreign kings, and the, the throne of David has yet to be reestablished. So chapter 9 doesn't really seem to fit with the context of Isaiah's lifetime, does it? And that's because Isaiah was anticipating a double fulfillment to this prophecy in chapter 7. Isaiah was prophesying about a child who would be born in his own lifetime that would serve as a sign that God was with his people and that he would deliver his people. But at the same time, he was also prophesying about the Messiah, the Messiah who would be Emmanuel, God with us. God himself come to earth to be with his people. And this Messiah would bring about a much, much greater deliverance, not from two enemy kings, but from our greatest enemy, the enemy of sin and death. So this prophecy had a short-term fulfillment that took place in Isaiah's time, 
But Isaiah 9 shows us that there was a much, much greater fulfillment still to come. So when Matthew is using Isaiah 7 here, he isn't misapplying anything. He's picking up on the larger context of this prophecy, and he's rightly showing us that Jesus is the greater fulfillment. He is the Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. He is God with us, Emmanuel. He came to bring us a much greater deliverance than the child from Isaiah 7. Now, before we move on from this, there's another point of contention here. And this has to do with Isaiah's use of the word virgin. Right? If Isaiah has kind of this double, this double fulfillment to this prophecy, and he's prophesying about the virgin birth of Jesus, how can it also apply to a natural birth of a child in his own lifetime? And this is one that, that critics level against Christians pretty consistently. So the Hebrew language has multiple words for women. One of these words, betula, is the word for virgin. It means exclusively virgin. And there's other words that specifically refer to women who are no longer virgins, women who are married women. Isaiah didn't use either of those two options. Isaiah chose the more ambiguous Hebrew word, alma. And this can refer to a virgin, but in general, it refers to a young woman of marriageable age. And so this word often implies a virgin, but we know elsewhere in the Bible, it's used to describe somebody who is obviously not a virgin. So because Isaiah anticipates a double fulfillment of this prophecy, he's intentionally using this more ambiguous term because it could rightly describe the mother and the child that took place, that was born in his day, but it can also be rightly used to describe the virginity of Mary, the mother of Jesus, 700 years later. So the virgin birth of Jesus was indeed promised and prophesied 700 years before it took place. 700 years. God's word does not fail. That's principle number three. God's word never fails. God's word is a certainty. These prophecies are not the only prophecies in Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, we find prophecy after prophecy that God has fulfilled. And it shows us that God's word will not fail us. He always follows through on what he promises to do. And he has promised to save those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It does not matter what you have done, the way that you have sinned, how frequently you have sinned. Forgiveness and salvation is a free gift that is available to all people. It is not based on our works. It's based on the perfect work of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. Right, that we don't have to earn our way to God, that he came and made a way for us himself. He did the work. He made a way for us to be saved and forgiven. And that's why we celebrate in the first place. We give gifts on Christmas because God has given us the greatest gift we could ever receive. He has given us salvation and forgiveness from sin. If you are here and you think this is too good to be true, Maybe you accept that, that Jesus is who he claims to be, but that God couldn't forgive somebody who's done what you've done. If that's you, then later today, I, I ask you to go back to Matthew 1, and I want you to read the first 17 verses. It's the genealogy of Jesus, and you're not going to recognize probably most of those names, but you're going to see the name Rahab. Rahab was not an Israelite. Rahab was not faithful. 
She was not a holy saint. You know what Rahab was? She was a Gentile prostitute. But she was welcomed in to the people of God. Not because of what she did, but because she believed. Because of her faith in the Lord. And not only was she saved and forgiven, God used her to bring about the Savior of the world. The king of righteousness descended from a Gentile prostitute. Her inclusion in this genealogy reminds us this salvation, this forgiveness that Jesus came to offer, it is for all people, not the put-together people, not the holy, not the saints, not the righteous. It is for lost and broken sinners like you and me. Friend, your sin is not greater than the mercy and grace of God. This salvation is not something you earn, something you achieve. God sent Jesus precisely because we couldn't earn or achieve it. It is a gift received by faith. Jesus came humbly born as a baby. He experienced human limitations, human emotions and thoughts. He experienced the temptations that you and I face, yet he remained perfect and sinless. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I got to gather my thoughts here for a sec. That threw me off. <laughs> this perfection of Jesus, it enabled him to be a true and perfect substitute for us on the cross, a perfect sacrificial lamb. But he did not stay dead. He rose again three days later in victory over sin and death so that we could be forgiven. And he will return one day. He is coming again for his people and those who have trusted in him and put their faith in him. They will live and reign with Christ for all of eternity. It's because of the Christmas story that we can be forgiven, that we can be reconciled to God. Believe Repent and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. If you hear anything else today, that is what I want you to hear. Believe in Jesus. Turn from your sin and receive the salvation he has offered you that he paid for with his own blood. The book of Romans tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We put our faith in Jesus by humbling ourselves, confessing our sinfulness to him, and we submit to him as Lord of our lives. We believe in our hearts that he is who he claims and that he truly did rise from the dead. The forgiveness Jesus offers is the salvation you need. It is the hope that you need. It's the only source of true satisfaction that you will ever find in this life. And it is a free gift for all of us. Don't reject that gift because Jesus doesn't give you all these other things that you thought you might want. Embrace the salvation he offers because that is what you truly need. Believe, repent, and receive the mercy and grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is simply nothing for us to do but praise Praise you for the incredible gift of your son. 
Because even while we were yet sinners, you loved us and you sent your son to die on our behalf. Lord, we were rebellious. We rejected you, and yet you still made a way for us to be redeemed and forgiven. God, we thank you for the incredible love you have for us. We thank you for the mercy and grace that you have lavished upon us. And Father, I pray for anyone in here who does not know you. I pray that you would open their eyes to understand and believe the truth of your word. We pray that your spirit would convict them of their sinfulness, that they would truly repent and believe and give their life to you. If not for the coming of Jesus, we would be hopelessly lost. We would be dead in our sin. God, we thank you for the gift of your son. And I pray that this Christmas we would not lose sight of the true reason that we are celebrating. Lord, for those that know you, I pray that you would give us boldness to lovingly share the good news of the gospel this, this holiday season with those who need to know Jesus, to share it with a world who so desperately needs you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.